This is New England Public Radio's Jazz Beat. I'm Tom Reaney with a podcast edition of my jazz blog, which you can find at nepr.net. I'm speaking today with Paul Arslanian, a pianist who was a founder of the Northampton Jazz Workshop, which over the past decade has been presenting jazz on Tuesday nights at uh, two or three different venues in Northampton, Massachusetts. And uh, I'd like to talk with Paul about that today, but what has uh, prompted this conversation this morning is the uh, recent uh, passing of the saxophonist Bootsy Barnes, a tenor saxophone legend from Philadelphia. And when I wrote something about Bootsy on Facebook, Paul chimed in with a memory of his own from having worked with Bootsy back in the day. And um, I knew that Paul had spent some time at San Francisco, but Philadelphia was entirely new uh, a bit of information for me. And I thought, you know, as well as I know Paul and many uh, jazz fans in this uh, area of the Connecticut River Valley know Paul, I thought, let's get his story a little bit more uh, clearly uh, defined uh, uh, here for uh, for uh, the uh, Jazz Beat podcast. So good morning, Paul. Good morning, Tom. It's the uh, COVID-19 oh, my coronavirus <laughs> pandemic <laughs> phenomenon that we're in the midst of. How are you doing? Uh, I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging in there, finding new ways to cope, um, you know. Uh, you got to stay loose, right? <laughs> Absolutely. But I'm healthy, and family's healthy and all that, so that's good. Good. Playing piano? Quite a bit, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was just thinking uh, I was playing a little bit this morning. Uh, of course, I've only been playing solo now for about five or six weeks. Mm-hmm. And um, I used to uh, shy away from solo concerts and stuff, and uh, <laughs> I <laughs> think I'm ready, getting huh? used to it now. <laughs> Well, Paul, as I recall, you came to this area, the greater Amherst, Connecticut River Valley, uh, Northampton, Massachusetts area, back in the uh, 1980s. But I know that your career preceded your arrival here in the Valley. So um, uh, would you remind me of when it was that you did uh, come to the Northampton area? I moved here in 84, yeah, uh, from California. Came directly from Oakland to here. Uh, And how long had you been in California? Since 69. Oh, 15 years. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And where did Philadelphia fit in that timeline? Uh, in the middle there. Uh, my wife went to uh, uh, postgraduate school uh, to get her doctorate, her EDD in dance, in 19, maybe 94 to 96, 97, somewhere around there, two and a half years. And so we moved the whole family down there. Um, and uh, I got right into the scene. I got some uh, dance accompaniment classes at Temple and Swarthmore and, you know, got to meet a lot of musicians, hung out at the sessions, and so it was a good time. Uh-huh. Yeah. What was it that, um, was San Francisco kind of the uh, uh, launching pad, as it were, of your career as a pianist? Um, as a professional pianist, for yeah. sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I went to Berkeley before that um, for a couple of years in, in Boston, and then on a summer vacation with a friend of mine going out to San Francisco, I stayed there. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, uh, and so that was in the summer of 69, yeah. When did you begin playing piano and when did jazz become sort of the focus and passion of your life? Um, yeah, I've been reflecting on that since you asked me to do this and thank you so much for uh, inviting me, by the way. It was probably when I was 12 or 13 um, my dad's uh, big band and uh, you know, his vocalist records and stuff started uh, 
and my, my uncle's uh, drumming, big band drumming. Uh, he wasn't a professional, but he had a drum set. <laughs> and uh, it just sort of sunk in, and I started playing by ear on my mom's piano. Um, so probably be around there is when I started listening to, to jazz records. And uh, at the, at, in the beginning, it was you know, big band stuff, jazz at the Philharmonic. My, my dad had a huge collection of those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was exciting stuff, you know, my first... Uh, real introduction to improvised uh, communication between musicians at that level was just incredible. So I think I got the bug right around there. Yeah, and of course, jazz at the Philharmonic refers to the concert uh, packages that included Oscar Peterson and and Hank Jones and Lester Young and Illinois Jaquette and Roy Eldridge and many jazz greats yeah, uh, yeah. like them. Uh, what? Uh, when were you born? 1948. And wh- where did you grow up? Oh, well, I'm an Air Force brat, so <laughs> it, that's a, kind of a long story. I'm an only child, too, so uh, mm-hmm. uh, it was Tampa, Florida at McDill Air Force Base for five years, uh, Westover Air Force Base, and uh, lived in Ludlow for a couple years, Okinawa mm-hmm. for a few years, California, Northern California uh, for a few years, and then back to uh, high school in Ludlow here, and then... Uh, off to uh, Colorado State University for a year, Berkeley for a couple of years, and then back to California. <laughs> so when you're getting into jazz and hearing the big band records and j- jazz at the Philharmonic, you're, it's, we're talking about 1960, 61 in that uh, yep. uh, time frame. And, mm-hmm. Actually, you know, I remember my, my earliest memory, and I tell this story, I probably exaggerate it many times now since then, but uh, my dad took me to a, a, an outdoor concert in a band shell and I think it was the Dorsey Brothers with Buddy Rich on drums. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was able to sit on the grass in front. And this is my memory. Buddy Rich was doing a solo, and I was going you know, crazy imitating him on the ground. And he, uh, after the song was over, pointed out and asked if I wanted to come play drums. <laughs> right on, man. So you I think at that point, I was really excited about music. Right. <laughs> you were the first air drummer, as it were. Uh, there huh? you go. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> And then, uh, so what happened from uh, the early 60s and, and your uh, formative period here of, of uh, learning to play piano? Did you take lessons? I, I took a, a few, a couple years of classical lessons. Um, early on, when I was about 11 or 12, I took a year or so, and then I broke my hand playing baseball and luckily didn't have to uh, do my, my recital that <laughs> year. And then I started again when I was about 15, uh, classical lessons uh, with Mr. Hart in sp- downtown Springfield. Mm. And uh, I would, you know, he would, he would be angry at me, uh, impressed, but angry because I would memorize all my, uh, you know, Bach uh, pieces instead of reading them because I was never a very good reader. Mm. I did that for a couple of years again and at the same time was learning by ear, um, copying uh, songs that I just love, Summertime, uh, Coming Home Baby, Started a little band in high school, and we played for the senior show and stuff like that. And it was mostly by ear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you went to college in Colorado, did you have something in mind for a career besides music, or was were you already on that? Uh, oh yeah, production? yeah. Well, I, I I didn't have it in mind, but my parents did. Um, uh, my uncles in uh, Italy are both doctors, and uh, you know they they sent me over there for a few weeks to see if I was interested in becoming a doctor. And I went to Colorado State. Um, taking sciences and stuff in preparation for that, but uh, yeah, it didn't last long. A couple semesters at the most, and then I just started 
basically dropped out and st stayed in the student lounge playing the, the grand piano there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then, <laughs> came, then came back east to Boston, huh? Yeah, uh, got a summer job. I was working uh, at the, the Mass Pike uh, in Ludlow there at the gas station, oh, the mobile okay. station, I think it was, and overnight shift. And th this is another one of those moments in my life that I, you know, remember a lot. I was listening to, I think it was a radio station out of Baltimore, all-night jazz station, and they played Miles in the Sky, oh, yeah. um, I, I, whatever song it was. And, uh, uh, I, you know, I almost started crying. You know, I, oh, yeah. I was waiting for something. I didn't know. I was sort of a lost soul then. And I heard that and the interaction and Tony Williams, so exciting. Uh, and so I just, you know, I begged my parents to let me go to Berkeley, mm. and somehow I got in. <laughs> they were accepting a lot of people there. <laughs> it was only like 700 students or mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that's when I got serious about wanting to play music. It's a beautiful album. It is. A Miles it really in the is. Sky. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I still go back to that. I listened to it a lot when it came out. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, really stands up. Um, so from Berkeley, you, did you major in piano? Um, I think I majored in uh, composition. I mean, that's basically how I got in, was on the strength of some songs that I had written. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess they made sense to the people there. And so, uh, you know, I studied with Ray Santisi and... Uh, Somebody else, a stride player, I can't remember his name. But I was, you know, pretty terrible student. <laughs> Lazy, maybe. I wanted to do my own thing, like a lot of people that age. Um, I enjoyed, though, the, you know, the arranging classes and the theory and harmony. I, I learned a lot in, in a short time, I think. Uh, I still have my notes mm. from them, uh, and they were valuable for sure. Mm. But... Uh, most of the time, I had, you know, I always had an apartment with a piano in it. You, we were able to rent pianos back then from the Wurlitzer Company for like $16 a month. So, uh, you know, I had a $60 a month apartment <laughs> in a basement apartment on Hemingway Street oh, and yeah. a piano. So that was the center for jam sessions. <laughs> and uh, that's where I learned an awful lot about playing, you know, in, interacting with other musicians. I, I know so. where Hemingway Street is. I in that neighborhood of Boston, I think it's probably referred to more often by Berkeley alums than any other. Uh huh. You know, yeah, yeah. It's right around the corner from residents right around the corner. History. Yeah. yeah. So, did you jump from uh, Berkeley to San Francisco? I did. Yeah. And what prompted that? Well, um, my my friend and I went on a, 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 a sort of a fishing trip across country in a jeep that he had rebuilt. Wow. Uh, my friend is still around. He comes to the club uh, all the time and, and to hear us and stuff. Uh, anyway, we got out there, and 
I liked it so much, uh, I, I stayed, you know. Haight-Ashbury? Uh, I didn't live in Haight-Ashbury, I don't think. Really. I lived uh, down on Polk Street, kind of the Tenderloin District okay, yep. of San Francisco for a, a little while, and then out in the Mission District. Mm. Um, but I'm very familiar with the Haight-Ashbury area, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you connect with the jazz scene there uh, early on? I did. Um, you know, I was, I was really fortunate. Uh, I wasn't that much of a player then, I don't think. But, uh, you know, the spirit was there and the drive was there. Uh, shortly after I got there, um, I was invited to do a jam session uh, out near Seal Beach or someplace. I don't know where it was. In San Francisco. Uh, it w- honoring, uh, I think it was a birthday party for Russ on Roland Kirk. Oh. So uh, me and a bunch of musicians that I didn't know uh, were at this house there on the beach. And uh, he was there. And wow. <laughs> it was great. Wow. And I just happened to be the only person that was available, you know. To play piano. To play piano. Or Rasan himself, Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, what a beginning. And um, so it was very exciting, very, you know, nerve-wracking, scary. But, um, you know, he started playing. We we were doing a blues. And uh, all of a sudden, after two or three choruses, he started going up a half step. (laughs) Each chorus after that for 12 choruses, and everybody had to do that. Yeah, sure. I wasn't ready for that, but I I, I hung in, and I, that was my first lesson, you know. <laughs> now, a whole lot of things been bothering me, because a lot of people think that things is cool. People riding around in those cars and riding them airplanes, pocket full of money, and everybody thinks that things is cool. Even old Jive President, accident, I mean, would make you think that things is cool. But I'm here to tell all y'all, and him too, that we got a cross that we must bear. And the cross gets awful heavy. Now there's the black cross, the green cross, the white cross, the double cross, the crisscross, and the lost cross. No, you know, when I think of San Francisco and the Bay Area in the late 60s, early 70s, I don't think of it as an epicenter of jazz, but of sort of psychedelic acid rock and, and, and all of that. But, um, but you mentioned Rasan Roland Kirk, and if ever there was a jazz musician who was kind of connected with what feels like that zeitgeist, it was Kirk. But what was the, what was the jazz scene like? What, did it feel like, uh, you know, an uh, Age of Aquarius element to, uh, to the jazz scene in San Francisco at that time? Um, not really. I mean, not to me. Um, <clears throat> there, was, there was a great teacher there, a, a pianist, Ed Kelly, who taught at the Laney College, a, a community music school. Uh, it was, a, I mean, a community college. And, uh, you know, a lot of people gravitated around him. Uh, he was in the East Bay area, Oakland area. And, uh, you know, they were all straight-ahead players. Pharaoh uh, um, uh, Saunders was, was a friend of Ed's, and they used to work together a lot. That's Oh, sure. I know Ed Kelly's name through Pharaoh. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know. yeah. But I don't think of Pharaoh as a straight-ahead player. Well, I mean, he did play straight. We, we, I've played with him uh, several times, mostly yep. in jam sessions but, mm-hmm. or playing harmonium on the recordings. But uh, uh, he, he, could, he could play straight-ahead. But, I mean, uh, you know, when Ed played with him, they played uh, pretty, pretty straight-ahead tunes, original tunes of Ed's or something. Um, he actually recorded with him, but 
uh, under another name. <laughs> they just had a picture of his saxophone in uh, red shoes or something. I can't remember oh, I what see. it was. You mean uh, Pharaoh recorded Pharaoh recorded with Ed, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But it was pretty straight ahead. Um, uh, and then on the East Bay, I mean, on the San Francisco side, uh, you know, there was Eddie Marshall was a drummer there. Yeah. And uh, uh, I, I used to play a lot. Well, I had a group with Bishop Norman Williams, and he was sort of the, they had the, uh, the bebop chair. And a lot of musicians went through him. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, he uh, always had a band. We, we, we co-led a band for about five years together, the One Mind Experience. So, so I was in that uh, a small group of people that, that were into the straight ahead and bebop um, scene. And I wasn't much involved with the acid rock scene. I was in Boston a little bit when I was in Berkeley. I used to go to, what was it, electric, late, no. Psychedelic, Psychedelic. Su- supermarket. Yeah, 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 yeah. See B.B. King and Janis Joplin and all that. Yeah. But when I got to San Francisco, I, I sort of ignored most of that scene and was mm-hmm. stuck in the jazz. A lot of jam sessions, played with Tom Harrell there for the first time. Oh. Uh, he was young and, and, and was so exciting and wild. You know, so there was a lot of jam sessions, a lot of small clubs, basement clubs. Uh, Yoshi's was just starting then in the old place mm-hmm. in North Oakland, and uh, was there, you know there was a few clubs. Nothing. Not, so not was, a, was there a fair amount of work? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it's hard to say. I, I, I was not on the upper echelon of players, you know, until well, no, never. <laughs> but um, there was not a lot of jazz work. I had an o- I had my own groups. So I generated a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Um, for a while, I did. There was a lot of GB work, uh, general business gigs, where you just go play tunes for people uh, at parties and stuff like that. And there was quite a bit of that. Um, but uh, I, I didn't last too long in that scene. Um, it was just too frustrating to play, uh, you know, non-interactive music. <laughs> yeah. What would you have to say? Uh, you know, whether it's about yourself or just in general about the, um, the necessity of, of, of that drive to find work for yourself as a jazz musician. Um, well, going back just a minute, there was, yep. of course, in San Francisco, the Keystone Corner, mm, which sure. was a big, you know, scene there, and the Both End Jazz Club. Uh, Both End. Fr- yeah, Freddie Hubbard used to come through there, uh, Bill Evans. Um, I've heard a lot of good... You know, so there was a scene. Archie Shepp recorded there in '66. Oh, really? With, uh, yeah. Roswell Road, yeah, great album. Yeah. Live in San Francisco, but uh-huh. it was at the both end. Yeah. So I I got to play there a lot, and through Bishop, we uh, we 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 hosted a weekly jam session, a late night jam session. So a lot of the musicians came through there too. Mm-hmm. So there was a scene. There was a scene. Um, uh, so, what did you ask? Uh, Just about that uh, necessity of you know that not oh. everyone has, but that drive to to find work. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I always, f- for most of my career out there, I always had some kind of extra gig, you know, day gig, um, whether it was uh, uh, carpentry, doing little odd jobs here and there, or working, in, when I first got there, in gas stations, that's all I knew. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, it's just something to survive, but then, uh, uh, to find gigs, I started bands. Yep. Uh, basically, I had three or four different bands there. I, um, cause as a composer, mo- my, my focus has been mostly composing. 
And so I needed an outlet for that anyway. Um, so I started, you know, several groups. Uh, one morphed into another, into another, and then would look for work. We had to find work because you couldn't keep the musicians if you didn't have the work. So, um, yeah, it was. It's always a struggle between uh, just wanting to play music and then having to make money. Um, so I didn't. Oh, uh, the the one job I did have that was playing music was. Uh, I was a full-time dance accompanist at Berkeley High School mm -hmm. in California. Mm -hmm. um, that, that was pretty sweet. Mm. For about three or four years, uh, I got a steady income. I could play piano during the day. Uh, they had a great jazz department, too, music department there. Mm -hmm. um, I, know, I know that accompanying dancers has been a, a kind of parallel track for your career, but before we go further into that, you mentioned composition, and... Um, uh, the song of yours that I know best, because it's been recorded by several different jazz musicians, is is a dance-related tune, Pas de Trois. Mm -hmm. When did you write that, and where did that? How did that get sort of off the ground and become a, a known tune or a played tune uh, by others? Well, I wrote it um, while I was on the road, actually, with uh, a tap dance company, Jazz Tap Ensemble, based out of between Los Angeles and San Francisco, and. Uh, Dance for three, sure. you know, because mm -hmm. uh, it's a waltz. And uh, I recorded it a couple of times myself, I think with a vibes player, Fred Ralston, and uh, uh, maybe on, I, I can't remember. And, I think and, we, I, and we have it here today but on, then, the, on the recording with Steve Neal. Yeah, so, but uh, when I was working for Teresa Records as sort of a, an A&R uh, uh, assistant producer, editor, music editor. Mm -hmm. um, uh, John Hicks was recording then and uh, with, uh, I think, Bookie, Walter Booker and... Uh, uh, Jimmy Cobb? Uh, no, no. Mickey, Mickey Roker? No, this was a, just a trio with, uh, oh, the Vibes player. Bobby Hutcherson. Bobby Hutcherson. Mm -hmm. they, they were doing a trio. And uh, uh, I think maybe they were looking for material or something, but so I... I uh, gave that to John and said, why don't you try this one? <laughs> and he loved it. <laughs> That was the first record, the first real recording of it uh, uh, that, that got out there was Bobby Bookie and, and 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 John, and then from there John recorded it several times, gave it to Roy Hargrove, mm -hmm. uh, Bertha Hope, uh, lots of lots of people recorded it. Yeah, so thank you, John. <laughs> Teresa Records, uh, a San Francisco-based label, right? Yes. And well, how did you get involved <clears throat> with them? Um, the one of the groups that I led, uh, the East Bay Latin, no, no, it wasn't that one. It was Nemosha. Um, he was the trumpet, the president of that company, the starter of the company, the, the, the one who bankrolled it and everything. 
was a, a really good trumpet and flugelhorn player, mostly flugelhorn. What was who, his name? Alan Pittman. Pittman, yeah. And he was a, a big-time USDA uh, researcher in polymer chemistry oh. there in uh, Richmond, I think it was, mm -hmm. East Bay. Mm -hmm. And so he had some money, and he uh, had a love of music, and he couldn't, couldn't put that down. So uh, anyway, he was in the band with Bishop and I, and we recorded our first album together, and he decided to make that a label, and named after his wife then at the time, Teresa. Hmm. Um, so it was Teresa Records, and we did two or three albums just with that Bishop and One Mind Experience group. Uh, before he started recording, he said, you know, I've got to do something with a big artist mm -hmm. to get this thing off the ground. So that's when he uh, worked with Pharaoh. Yep. Uh, and then John Hicks came along with Pharaoh and did his own and, uh, and did some stuff with, um, oh, Ken, not Nat Adderley, yep. Joe Bonner, pianist. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I, I got to meet all those cats, sometimes play with them, but uh, got to do music editing for them, too. I'd cut their 30-minute songs down to <laughs> would fit at that time on an album, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that, yeah, Teresa uh, gave us a nice catalog of music from that uh, period with yeah. those artists. And I think Bobby Hutcherson led uh, maybe one date for the label. But in any case, um, um, yeah, it's a nice, substantial uh, body of music on Teresa Records. Yeah. Somewhat unusual, too, for it, uh, a San Francisco jazz label during that time, which we're talking late 70s? Yeah, I think the, the first first recording came out maybe 76, yeah. and then he... I, I left in 84, and he was still struggling to, you know, keep it afloat, maybe in through 88 or 90, and then sold it to Evidence Records, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yep. And so from San Francisco, did you come east to uh, this area? I did. Well, I was in Oakland. Most, most of the time I lived in Oakland. Right. That's where I met my wife. We, we actually uh, were co... Uh, uh, it was a cooperative music and dance studio, everybody's dance studio in North Oakland. And we, uh, we ended up running that until uh, uh, we moved out here in 84. So we were mostly in Oakland. And before you came here... Um, let me just backtrack a little bit. Um, you got more, you, you began, did, did your accompaniment of dancers begin with that gig at the Berkeley High School? Uh, just a little before that, in the dance studio, we, we opened it up. It was, it mm -hmm. was actually a music and dance studio. Uh, Peter Barchet, bassist, oh, yeah. uh, was part of it. We were sort of in an experimental, uh, improvisational group together then. So he and I and... Uh, uh, couple of other people and then several dancers opened this studio basically it was a dance studio but we also taught some music lessons and, and accompanied the classes this was probably 72 73 72 that's when I first started in working with dancers and I, I loved it we did some had some contact improv people come from New York and uh, uh, which is still going on uh, and, and strong so Improvisation, working with dancers, was real exciting for me. And then, then Berkeley came a couple years later. Uh, I just sort of—I'm not sure exactly how that happened, but uh, I fell into it, and uh, I've been doing it ever since. Yeah. And you've worked so, with some pretty renowned uh, tap dancers over the years. Uh, 
Yeah, uh, yeah. Tell us, <laughs> tell the name of you. Well, uh, uh, Honey Coles, mm. uh, Jimmy Slide. Mm. Of course, uh, everybody that I'm going to mention is probably gone by now. Uh, mm. is, is definitely gone. Buster Brown, Fayard Nicholas of the Nicholas Brothers. Wow. Um, Savion Glover, um, Gregory Hines, Diane Walker, lots of folks, lots of folks. Um, started through the touring of that jazz tap ensemble, which I did for four years or five years. And then uh, when I came out here, I was, uh, I think it was, yeah, it was Barry Harris. Um, he got, uh, I was still working with dancers here and there in the Boston area, but mm -hmm. uh, Barry got sick or something and couldn't do this tour, um, Dance Umbrella tap dance tour with uh, Savian Glover and uh, Jimmy Slide and Diane Walker and stuff. And so uh, they had heard about me and asked me to do it. Mm. <laughs> and uh, that was with Alan Dawson on drums and John Lockwood on bass. Wow. And uh, we continued on until uh, John and I are still working together uh, after Alan's passing. Uh, uh, Ron Savage oh, yeah. took over the chair, so that's the, the the trio that works all around New England here. For uh, yeah, it was great. It was great. Love it. And, and, and I was going to say, the tap dancers that I work with, they were you know great musicians too. Some of them played instruments, but uh, they all played with their feet. They sure. knew they oh. knew the tunes oh, 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 so well, mm -hmm. and uh, it was like playing with another musician. You mm -hmm. know, it was it was it was great. Yeah, I remember the uh, <clears throat> uh, Northampton, the old Pleasant Street Theater, uh, booked the uh, documentary uh, No Maps on My Taps. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, which would have been 1978 or 79 or so. And, um, and uh, around that occasion, there was a tap parade in Northampton that Included uh, Sandman Sims and oh, yeah. and uh, cool. and uh, Jimmy Slide and and other of the of the dancers who were basically profiled in uh -huh, that film. Uh -huh. It was a terrific uh, a moment in Northampton uh, cultural history. A tap parade right down Main Street uh, around that occasion. And I saw that film again a couple of years ago in New York, along with some other. I went to another program over at uh, Lincoln Center, the dance, um, um, you know. Um, uh, program at Lincoln Center and and saw some very rare footage of uh, of the great tap dancers. Uh -huh. It was an amazing, like a two day immersion in tap, two or three years ago in the city. All that uh, stuff is on uh, YouTube now. Uh, it's just it's just incredible uh, the dancing back then, you know, and uh, that it's all available for the young dancers. It's a pretty big scene right now. I still work. Uh, well, actually, the Boston Tap Fest got canceled for this summer. I teach at it every year for uh, you know a week, and I did Jacob's Pillow several times mm. for a couple weeks at a time out there, and of course that's canceled too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, but you know you mentioned the musicianship of the dancers, and it brings to mind a scene with Sandman Sims, who's performing with might be Lionel Hampton, but um, it's a Duke Ellington standard Cottontail or Take the A Train or. Uh, one of those uh, well-known Ellington tunes, and the band, of course, is playing, and Sandman is doing like these four-bar breaks, and then the band completely lays out, right. and Sandman carries that entire tune for like two minutes, oh, yeah. and you never lose sight of what that tune is that he's dancing. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So, uh, just so intrinsically musical, yeah, um, yeah, through the taps, and 
the feet and the sand, of course, too. Right. Get that snare drum uh, feel. There's also an incredible video of, uh, you said Duke, uh, Ellington, of Chuck Green Ooh. had mm -hmm. huge feet. Mm -hmm. And he's, his, one of his famous routines is A-Train. Uh, and oh. you, same thing. Uh, you know, that's typical with the big bands. The, the dancer would do breaks, and then they would stop or do stop time or something right. because of the right. volume issue, you know. Uh, but Ch that's incredible. I think that was in No Maps as well. Mm -hmm. um, Rings a bell. Yeah. yeah. Well, you came to Northampton, um, and um, you've been a, you know, wonderful and and uh, sort of um, prominent part of the scene since 1984. Um, who did you, what what sustained you, you know, uh, early on here uh, besides the uh, gigs with uh, with dancers? Um, well, I, when I first got out here, I uh, just looked for musicians to work with, uh, did a little odd jobs here with Herman Hampton, uh, bass player. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, then I started working with Whitney Cronin, wonderful older bass player. Um, used to work with uh, uh, Woody Herman. Buddy Morrow and Woody mm -hmm. Herman yeah. and uh, Clyde Thornhill. Uh, Claude Thornhill, Claude sorry. Thornhill. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, I learned a lot from him. We used to do uh, duos and trios, work with Montina, the vocalist. Uh, Claire played drums with us a lot. Claire Arrhenius. Claire Arrhenius, yeah. And so we, uh, you know, we, we found quite a few gigs. Yeah, little, you know, $75 gigs, whatever, um, at, at different uh, hotels, restaurants, uh, stuff like that. And uh, so I managed to get into the scene. That along with my uh, little bit of teaching I did at Holyoke Community College. Mm -hmm. uh, and the dance work I had uh, doing, you know, sustained me well. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's how it started. And then, uh, then the idea came to start the jazz workshops, uh, and that's been my main focus since 10 years now. Yeah. But mm -hmm. in between then, didn't you, did you tour with, uh, with some prominent uh, musicians? Did you have some gigs with... Uh uh, Not really. Uh, I mean, I worked with uh, for a couple of years with Archie Shep. After uh, uh, Tom McClung left to Europe, I sort of took over that chair for a little while. We okay. did, mm -hmm. you know, just a little touring around here. Uh, went to Montreal. Um, and no, nobody else real prominent that I can think of. It was mostly through the tap dance touring that I did, yeah. where I got to work with, you know, Alan Dawson and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, so what prompted the, um, the establishment of the jazz workshop? Well, the bassist, Dave Shapiro, was, having, was struggling uh, with, uh, you know, uh, physical and emotional uh, things, and he needed something. And we'd always talked about the lack of a, jam, a good jam session. Um, in San Francisco and in Philadelphia, I was always, you know, part of a, a, a weekly jam session. Mm -hmm. And it was just a great experience, and uh, and and he did the same in uh, in New York. New York, yeah. yeah. And so we decided to ask Jim Dasmati over at Green uh, Green Street Cafe. I guess this was 2000, mm -hmm. uh, 2010, a year before uh, uh, Dave passed. Yeah. Uh, if we could start, you know, a weekly thing. Uh, get a free meal and uh, 150 bucks so we could uh, hire a, a guest artist. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, w I figured, you know, it'd be a way to maybe get D Dave back on track or mm -hmm. something like that. Uh, that didn't work out. And a few weeks into it, 
uh, we had to, you know, he, he checked out basically yeah. and George K came on. Uh, so that was, that was the basic idea was to get this jam session going for all of us, you know, for, for ourselves and for uh, local musicians to be able to meet and play with some great players from out of town. You know, I've been in the Valley since the 1970s and hosted Jazz a la Mode since 1984, which is, you know, 35-plus years now. And for, for a lot of that period, until about 10 years ago, mm -hmm. it frustrated me um, that there wasn't a sort of um, um, central venue with a kind of local rhythm section available for guest soloists to become to come in yeah. and play, mm -hmm. you know, because I knew that that was kind of the, um, the format almost or the, um, the standard by which a lot of players got around is dropping into different cities and locales and doing a night or a half a week or whatever. Yep. And, uh, and this area just seemed to be sadly deprived of that for a long time. We, you know, Hartford had something a little bit along those lines with the 880 Club, where there was, you know, of course, an active jazz yep. um, kind of local scene uh, for many years. But um, so, um, um, you know, I <laughs> I used to um, wish for this kind of thing for a long, long time. And um, yeah, <laughs> and, and so well, you're 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 talking about it from the perspective of musicians who, of course, are always in need of a place to play. Um, there was such a, you know, a need for it from an audience perspective, too. Well, you know, we have uh, uh, some of the same people, core of 30 to 50 people, have been coming every Tuesday night. Uh, for 10 years. For 10 years now. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's grown to close to 100 people that come and just really dig it and, and need it, you know? Mm, uh, and that's the appreciation I got uh, of doing this to realize how important it is that we play this music. It's not just for us, <laughs> <laughs> you know? I'm, I sort of knew that all along from playing uh, sessions and, 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 and especially in the black clubs in, in San Francisco and Oakland, how important music was to the community. But uh, this revitalized me oh, for sure, interesting. you know, doing this, seeing that you know, the community really needs it, you know, and it's uplifting for everybody, you know. So did you begin this um, Tuesday night uh, series at Green Street Cafe with uh, a guest soloist booking right from the start? Yeah, yeah. Um, we had two, two uh, young women, uh, Emily Duff, mm -hmm. and I can't remember the other girl's name. She's not playing that much anymore. Two saxophonists. They were local, but they were the, the first guest artists. And Sarah Manning? No, it wasn't Sarah Manning. She came on a year later or something. Okay. Uh, but, uh, uh, and then the second one was Scott Mullet. Oh, yeah. The, it, late, the late great the late great player. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. And uh, Eric Lawrence came on. Oh, These were all friends of ours. Sure. You know. And then we didn't hire any big names until maybe Gary Smullyan. Mm -hmm. uh, he was lo local too, so we didn't reach out to New York and all that yet in, mm -hmm. in the first six or seven weeks. But then uh, word started to spread. Once Gary got in there, mm -hmm. it sort of gave us some cred, you know, mm -hmm. credibility <laughs> sure. in in the, in, the, in the greater jazz world. And we realized that uh, it's a Tuesday night. It's not that far from the city. 
yeah. and musicians wanted to play and we were you know we got some good tips and we're able to pay them enough to make it fun for them and worthwhile you know It's been going now for, well, notwithstanding the hiatus that the whole world is in at the moment for COVID uh, virus, uh, it's been going for 10, 10 years this April. Uh, yeah, yeah, we uh, we had scheduled a big bash with Gary Smullyan, who's played uh, maybe two other anniversaries of ours, <laughs> April 7th through 10, somewhere around there. And so April 7th was supposed to be a, a big Big bash, yeah. <laughs> now, you mentioned the um, coming into a, a greater uh, appreciation for how vital this is for, for listeners, for audience, as well as for the players on the bandstand. Um, I've noticed also, Paul, that uh, a priority in, in the Tuesday night series has been the jam session, the open door policy, basically, for people who want to sit in. And what uh, inspired that? Um, well, that's just part of uh, that, that scene. Uh, we, we, that's what we did in, uh, in San Francisco at the Divisadero Club and the Both End Club and, and other spots where we had a weekly jam session. We'd play a little bit um, as a group and then open it up. Uh, and 23rd Street Cafe was named, I, I named a song for it. Bruce Clobber ran the session there and... Uh, Somehow I got hooked up with him, and I became the, the, the regular house pianist for that. Uh, and that's where I met Bootsy Barnes. He would come in and, and play. And usually Bruce, the drummer, would hire uh, someone to feature that night, some lo mostly a local Philly person to feature, and mm -hmm. then open it up as a jam session. And uh, that's when I got to sort of appreciate vocalists. A lot of vocalists came by. Mm -hmm. And uh, so... When I started this, it just seemed totally natural to do it that way. Yeah. 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 And you've also branched out, I think, through the workshop, through the Tuesday series, uh, into uh, some public school um, workshops and presentations, master classes uh, with guest uh, artists. What's yeah. Going on there? Yeah, it seemed an, uh, a, a logical extension uh, through the jazz festival. I, I became, uh, you know, uh, Involved as a producer for the jazz festival. Uh, what jazz festival uh, is that? Sorry, the Northampton Jazz Festival. 
uh, I did the last two or three years when it was a, a, a big festival at the parking lot of Thorns there. And then we took a couple of years off and started it up again as a uh, uh, an October festival with mm -hmm. different uh, venues indoors around town. Um, and so we were looking for some kind of community outreach program. And uh, you know, we, I came up with the idea of uh, uh, on, a, on a because I reached out to the uh, JFK band director, and it turned out their weekly rehearsals for their jazz band, she has two of them actually, a seventh and eighth grade band, were Monday nights. So it's just, it, it was perfect. We, yeah. we take the guest artist that we were, that was a good teacher as well and into it, that was coming on a Tuesday, bring them on a Monday, talk the hotel into giving, uh, giving us cheap room for two nights. And uh, they'd go in and do a clinic with my trio. Uh, Gary Smullyan was the first, to, what was it, Gary? Yeah, I think Gary was the first one to do it. Uh, and then we do a, a, a concert along with some of the students the next morning on Tuesday morning, and then invite them to come to the club too. Uh, and it just seemed perfect. Um, so uh, I thank uh, Claire, Claire Ann Williams, the band director there, for being a great partner and willing to, to do it. And uh, it's, that's one of the saddest parts of this thing is we had, uh, um, uh, who was it, Joe Magnarelli was supposed oh, yeah. to do uh, uh, this week. Great trumpeter. And mm -hmm. uh, oh, Pete. Uh, Peter uh, Anderson? Phil, no, Phil Grenadier. Oh, yeah. Was going to do uh, uh, next Tuesday <laughs> oh, two at, the, at the North Hampton High School. Back. We had uh, one at JFK. We, we've got two of them now, mm -hmm. one at JFK okay. and one at Northampton High School. Uh, and that's sort of funded through the Jazz Festival. And the one at Northampton High School is actually funded through uh, um, donations made in the name of uh, 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 Elliot Ross, a, a student of Northampton High and JFK who passed away very young. Mm -hmm. Uh, a few years ago, the parents asked us to start a program in his name too. Mm -hmm. So, uh, this is the best way for kids to learn and, and appreciate and get to to know and love the music is to actually see people uh, with a high de level of, of ability and love of the music playing in their own element. You know. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Now I don't mean to put you on the spot, but over the years, over the past decade of hosting the Tuesday night sessions for Northampton Jazz Workshop, an awful lot of guest soloists have come in. Uh, would you like to mention uh, any whom you've been amazed by who were maybe new to you and, um, and who we ought to know more about? Oh my gosh. Well, you know, uh, it's been such an honor to play with some of these people. Uh, the most recent one that played uh, was a young alto saxophonist, Irina Terracubo. Oh yeah. Arena. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely amazing. I don't know how old she is now, maybe getting old, 27, <laughs> something <laughs> like that. Um, but she's absolutely amazing, and she just gets better every time and uh, plays like a 70-year-old you know, master or <laughs> right. something, yeah. but with chops uh, all over the place, but yeah. just really swings. Uh, before that, uh, Camille Thurman, uh, yeah. saxophonist. And singer. And singer. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, what's the, the, oh gosh, vocalist worked with for the first time. She passed away. Rebecca Paris. Rebecca Paris. Mm -hmm. She could just deliver a song like oh. nobody. Yeah. 
uh, it was so much fun working with her. You know, yeah. it was so loose on the bandstand mm -hmm. that you didn't care if you didn't know exactly where she was because you were you were there with her. You know, right. <laughs> um, oh, what else? Uh, the, the list the list goes on you know Don Braden always surprises me uh, Houston Person mm. he was a, a great find uh, our bassist George Kay uh, worked for five years with him and Edda Jones on the road mm -hmm. and so uh, we were able to get Houston up here and he, he loves it he loves it uh, he's been coming up five six seven times maybe yeah. over mm -hmm. the over the eight years or so and uh you know, it's it's a it's just a joy working with some of these masters. Fifty-two weeks a year, <laughs> different guests each time over ten years now. It's it's been incredible. So yeah. that's just a few of them. Yeah. Well, um, I want to thank you for uh, joining us today, and thank you for um, what you um, provide the valley. You know, I was speaking uh, in the week in which uh, uh, Fred Tillis has passed uh, oh, at yeah. age ninety, and Fred was among the many hats he wore as a professor of music at the University of Massachusetts, as a composer of symphonic and choral music, as a jazz saxophonist, as a poet. Fred was also the director of the Fine Arts Center at UMass for a couple of decades and, and played such a vital role, it can't be exaggerated really, in, in elevating the status of the music at the university level and at the bigger cultural level of the of the Connecticut River Valley, and um, and um, Fred is, was succeeded by Willie Hill, who carried on a strong jazz um, profile for the uh, Fine Arts Center at the university. But you know, um, at a in a different setting, perhaps a little bit more grassroots, you have really um, you know built and sustained something here that means, as you mentioned, 100 people every Tuesday night who just thrive on this. But, um, you know, the, um, the influence, the impact um, uh, of what you're doing, I think, is uh, very significant. And, uh, and you know, and it's, uh, it, it remains to be, you know, it, you're helping to um, advance careers of Reina Terracubo and Camille Thurman and and others who are among the guest artists, and of course the jam session element of it too is probably a very s substantial building block for yeah. a lot of young players. So thank you so much for for that, uh, Paul, and thanks for being our guest today. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Tom. Okay.